This morning, in our sermon, we're going to be looking at Psalm 40. But before we get to Psalm 40, I'd like to take you to Hebrews chapter 10. So if you could turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Now, the reason I want to look at Hebrews 10 with you is because it it really tells us a lot about what's going on in Psalm 40. It's going to help us to kind of have this background in mind. and, And as you'll see as we're reading in verses 5 through 7 of Hebrews 10, we actually are going to see Psalm 40 quoted. So, very relevant passage here. So, Hebrews 10, if you have that open, we'll read the first 10 verses. So, we're jumping into this letter, obviously. But here we, here we find ourselves in chapter 10. For since the law has... The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And this is where Psalm 40 is quoted. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, if you turn back to the Old Testament, we're going to Psalm 40, and that will be our text for today. All right, Psalm 40 then. We see the subscription above the top. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. 
I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So far, a reading. This message is entitled, Lessons from the Pit. And if you have your Bibles, you may find it helpful to follow along. We're not going to go entirely verse by verse, but you'll be able to see the breakdown. It's often helpful to have your your Bibles open as we go along. I'd like to begin then with a question. Are you the kind of person who finds it difficult to wait for things? Maybe it's that Amazon package that you're expecting in a few days or that ever-elusive check in the mail. You've been promised that it is definitely on its way, but it never seems to arrive. Maybe for you kids, it's the countdown to your birthday or maybe the end of school so that the summer holidays can get started. Now, it's one thing when we wait patiently for something that we're looking forward to. But it can be quite another thing to wait patiently when you're waiting for a hard time or a a trial to end. But how should Christians wait on the Lord in times of trial and hardship? Or, as we're looking here at Psalm 40, as King David, he puts it rather graphically, when we feel like we are in the pit. Psalm 40, it can instruct us here. And so this morning, I want to look with you at this psalm in three parts. First, we'll see deliverance out of the pit, and that's going to come out of the first five verses. Second, we're going to see our Savior and the pit. For that, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. And then third, and it's going to be briefly, I'll just preempt that now, briefly, we're going to see our hope while in the pit. So that'll be verses 11 through 17. So let's start then with deliverance out of the pit. So if you have your Bibles, here we have King David. He's reflecting on a past difficult experience. He's remembering what he did and what it was like. And so in verse 1, he explains that this was an experience that took a while. 
And in the Hebrew, it, it literally says this. It says, in waiting, I waited for the Lord. So it's stressing the waiting. There was a need for him to be patient. And now we don't know how long he had to wait, or even what the specific pit that he's talking about here is. But we know that it was a bad one. He, he calls it the pit of destruction. But he didn't stay there. He's remembering. He's looking back. Because though he had to wait for the Lord in God's time, he says, he inclined to me and heard my cry. So right from the start, we can recognize the need for patient endurance in our seasons of trial. We may pray, and God does hear, and yet we may need to wait. In verse 2, we're given this mental image that I think is kind of fun to imagine. You can get there as well. David, he says of the Lord, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. And so David, he's using this, this powerful imagery. He wasn't literally stuck in a pit. If that was his problem, somebody would come along and just pull the guy out. That, that's not what's going on. He, he's talking figuratively. It, it's like a pit. This is how his hardship felt. And, and kids, maybe when you think of a pit, you think of a puddle. Uh, we're not talking a fruit pit. I had to clear that with my daughter yesterday. It's not a fruit pit. This is a hole in the ground. It's not a puddle. It's a bit bigger. It's a little bit like a puddle, I guess, but puddles are are fun. You can jump in and and out of puddles, and you can have a great time, but a pit, it's like just this this giant hole in the ground that it's it's so deep that if you fall in, you're not going to be able to get yourself back out. So you would be stuck there, and that isn't fun at all. But it isn't just a, a deep hole in the ground. You have to imagine, David, he's, he's talking about a bog. You've got this gross, dark water around your feet. You've got these steep walls all the way around. You've got mud that just keeps sucking you down. You wouldn't want to stay there. He'd be calling for help because you'll need someone to come and to rescue you. And so that's what David is describing. He was in a season of life that was very hard, And he called out to the Lord for help, and God heard his cries. God took him out of the pit and set his feet upon a rock, making his steps secure. So now he's remembering, right? So he's back on this firm ground, and and David, he gives all the glory to God. So we see in verse 3, it's God who gives him a new song, Here he is, he has a testimony to speak of, a story of what God has done in his life. This was a deliverance that was extraordinary, and it wasn't something that was just done in a hidden corner only for David. This was a deliverance that was witnessed by many. It's a deliverance that has significance for many. As verse 3 concludes, it is the grounds for many to see and fear and put their trust in. In God. Now, pits almost by definition are the opposite of fun. And given a choice, how many of us would willingly choose a hardship or a pit to endure? Yet, pits are a part of our life in a fallen world. And there can be so many different kinds of pits. Some pits, we could say they're, they're physical. 
Some of them are spiritual. Some of them last for a short time. Some of them, maybe like chronic pain, may last an entire lifetime. But how are we to view these pits? How are we to endure these pits? As Christians, do we simply need to grin and and, and bear them? Well, no. Like David, we may cry out to the Lord, but we need to recognize this. Like David, the way in which we endure our trial is in itself a testimony of our faith. It's a testimony to the world. It's a testimony to the church of the faithfulness of our God. Now, here you are. I've got a congregation in front of me. You know each other. I imagine and hope that you love each other. And I'm sure that in a a group of this size, barely a week would go by in which there's not something in in one of your lives that all of you are are bringing before the throne that you're, you're pleading with God for. It's a situation that draws your attention. It draws your care. That's part of the Christian life as we live together as God's people, right? Now, if you think back, how often have you had reason to praise God for the faith of someone else under trial, for God's faithfulness, even in answered prayer? Now, it's an encouragement to you in your own trials. It's an encouragement to the church, and it's a shining light to the world. And as David, he reflects on his deliverance from the pit. In verse 4, he makes a general statement that summarizes his findings. He says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And if you're in the Psalms often, maybe you're hearing Psalm 1 there. It sounds a lot like Psalm 1. There's a, a really straight shooting truth here. We are those who trust in God and nothing else in an ultimate sense. We trust him for this life and for the next. And so are you in the pit? Do you want to get out? Well, there's only one way that that's going to happen. By trusting in the Lord and in his timing. And if you trust in the Lord, you can await with assurance. He does hear us, even if it requires patience. And so Matthew Henry, maybe a familiar name, he's written a lot of of devotional content, he's written commentaries, um, a Puritan, he puts it like this, when we wait on the Lord, we may wait long, but never in vain. And so for us here, we need to ask, are we prepared to wait? Are we prepared to trust God in his plan, even in a long season of hardship? In verse 5, we see that God, he's completely worthy of that trust. It's almost like David, he's stumbling over himself to, to try and voice how often and how wonderfully God has been faithful and how faithful he still remains. And so David, he moves from his, his personal experience of deliverance and he expands more broadly to the deliverance that God has given to his people throughout history. And so we can see it there, your thoughts toward us. He's thinking of God's covenant people. We could say the Old Testament church. So maybe David, he's bringing to mind the stories of the Exodus. You think the people of Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. You say, how is that for a, a huge pit? 
a long wait. Yet God, he is the faithful deliverer. He cares for his people. And so it's like David, he starts adding up the events and he just, he needs to stop. There's too many. They are more than can be told. So does God deliver his children? And Maybe when we're in the pit, we, we wrestle with that. We need to remember, we can look at church history. We can look at those we love. We can look at our congregation. We can look at our own life. If you are a Christian, that reality is a testimony of God's deliverance. But as wonderful as all of this is, it's very possible for us to think of God's deliverance as, as somehow something that happens from a distance, as, as if it's done from afar, Almost like God sees us in our pits and, you know, he, he just tosses down a rope from heaven and, and then we can pull ourselves out. And we could say, you know what, that would actually still be very merciful of God if he were to do that. But God's grace is greater than that and his deliverance is more astounding. When Adam and Eve, by their sin, they turned our world from paradise, as God had created it, into a pit. We could say it's almost like a a giant garbage dump. The hope of mankind, it it lay in tatters. In Adam's sin, we have all sinned, and our need was dire. It was a sin that made us worthy of the pit of hell itself. It marred our souls, and it marred our world. So it was a pit that's beyond words. It's a pit that we couldn't escape from. It was a pit that would have consumed all mankind, except that God in his mercy, he made a promise, a promise that a savior would come and that he would deliver. And so I'd like in our second place to consider that deliverer, I'd like to look at our savior and the pit. See that verses six to 10. In verse 6, David, he begins to prophesy. And so by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David, he pens words which are only fully met by Jesus Christ. Is David still here? Yes. But he's going beyond. Even if in prophecy, he's going beyond himself. This is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And how can I say that? How can I say he's talking about Jesus Christ? Well, We've already read in Hebrews 10, that's what it tells us. Jesus, he takes these words as his own. Now, before we go to Hebrews 10, let's look at verse 6. What's going on here? David, he says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But if you know Israel and God's commands to sacrifice, we might say, but wait, isn't, isn't that what God actually asked them to do? And the answer is yes, he did. So, so are we missing something here? What's going on? And so if we step out of the psalm for a minute, we can, we can look to a situation that helps us understand. It's in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. It, we'll just, we don't need to read it. We don't need to go there. But just briefly, I'll tell you what happens there. There's Samuel. He, he tells Saul, who's the king, that God has rejected Saul as being king over Israel. Now, Saul, he tries to complain by saying that he's offering sacrifices. So what's the problem? And this is what Samuel tells him. He says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So here we have Saul, he, he's bringing sacrifices, but he completely ignored God's command. His heart wasn't there at all. He's going through the motions. We could say he's a hypocrite of the first class and he should have known better. So what does God require? Well, church, it's more than the motions of the Christian life. It's more than our tithes. It's more than even coming here week after week. God desires perfect obedience from a pure heart. Well, if that's what our God requires of us, do you see the problem that David would have? More than that, the problem that every single one of us would have. Because if we look at ourselves, our obedience, it isn't perfect, is it? And so that's where Christ, he bursts onto the pages of Psalm 40 so powerfully. With, with such a brilliance. In Hebrews 10, which we read, we see that the words of Psalm 40, they're put on the lips of our Savior. It's almost word for word. Hebrews 10, verse 5 to 7, speaking of Jesus, they read like this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now the problem of our disobedience, it's like an immense pit that we cannot escape. Maybe David's words earlier, the pit of destruction, might sound fitting. Of ourselves, we're guilty before God. We have not obeyed perfectly. We have not done so with a pure heart. And so we would deserve only hell. We would deserve his eternal wrath to fall on us. And unless God delivers us, we would have no hope of salvation at all. We so desperately need a deliverer. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. In Hebrews 10 we're given a divine commentary on what Psalm 40 is talking about. We learn in Hebrews 10 that the sacrificial system was a shadow of the better that was to come. The blood of bulls and lambs, it it could not remove sin. They pointed ahead. They pointed beyond themselves. Did they have a use? Yes, they absolutely did. They, They showed very visually the cost of sin, that blood needed to be spilled They reminded the people of their sin, the seriousness of it, but they could not of themselves remove that sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But then gloriously in Hebrews 10 verse 5, it shifts to a wonderful word for us. It says there, consequently, problem, solution, Consequently, Christ came into the world. You see, the problem was ours, but the solution is God's. And so Psalm 40, it tells us of the coming of Christ, that that our Savior, He came for a purpose. All those sacrifices, you think it's just rivers of blood in the temple day after day. It couldn't do a thing. It couldn't solve our sin problem. 
What was required and what God required was a a perfect sacrifice, a, a perfect life of complete and perfect obedience. And therefore Jesus came. We have the sinless Son of God. Think of who Jesus is. He's he's described as the king of the angels, of, of angel armies. His character, he's spotless, completely pure, holy, undefiled. He's in heaven in glory. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And what does he do? He enters man's pit. He enters our garbage dump and he lives among his sin-shattered people. He eats with them. You think of the Pharisees, they were so offended by this. He, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He, he touches them. He heals them. He befriends them. He endures their sorrow with them, yet he does it completely sinlessly. He does so in perfect obedience. And though sinless, though he done nothing wrong, he goes to the cross to pay the debt of our own sin. He goes to the cross for the very sins of those who had sinned against him. And so we see our Savior. He doesn't save from far away. He enters into the pit to actually lift us out of it. And it's Jesus who then sets us, as Psalm 40 says, on that solid rock. And we think of who he is more than setting us on the solid rock. He himself is the solid rock, the solid rock on which we stand. But then we step back and we say, did he come grudgingly? Not at all. He came willingly. He came in love. He came for us and he knew what it would cost. We see in the verse seven there, through the Holy Spirit, David, he's given words that look beyond his life to that of our Savior And so there are majestic, kingly words on Jesus' lips. Only Jesus can take these words and mean them at their deepest level. So hear what Jesus says. You hear the words of your king. He says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it was written of me. We think of our Savior knowing our desperate need. He doesn't shrink back from the humiliation of the Incarnation. Christ, he never turned from the will of his Father. It was his constant delight. And so here we're talking about perfect submission and obedience with a never-wavering, pure heart. Verses 9 to 10, they can refer to the actions of David, but again, so much more fully to the actions of Christ. And in these verses, we see public proclamation taking place. And if we think of Jesus' ministry on earth, what was it that he was doing? Well, Jesus' entire life, it was a sermon of righteousness. He walked and he lived among the people. They saw his life. They saw its perfect consistency. They saw its holiness. They saw the love that he had for his Father, his perfect obedience to the law. Now, Jesus, he was utterly unashamed of the gospel. And so as Spurgeon puts it, never either from love of ease or fear of men did the great teacher's lips become closed. He was instant in season and out of season. The poor listened to him. 
Princes heard his rebuke. Publicans rejoiced at him. Pharisees raged. But to them both, he proclaimed the truth from heaven. The truth that no one can come to the Father except through the Son. And so do you seek deliverances from the pit? Well, it's going to come through Christ alone. Christ, salvation through Christ, or not at all. And so he came because of his immense love for us and because of our desperate need, but also because this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. The scroll of the book foretold his coming. And so where Adam failed in his obedience, Jesus, the second Adam, obeyed perfectly. And through his perfect life of obedience, he could become the sacrifice that would put an end to all sacrifices. Our robes of sin are given to him. His robes of righteousness given to us. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. You think of our Savior's words from the cross. He declares them in agony, but also in victory. It is finished. His sacrifice for you His victory made yours. Now, has God changed in what he desires of us today? Where Christ came and he's obeyed perfectly, does God tell us, you know what, don't bother. He's got that. You just do whatever you like. Well, that would be inconsistent. It would be rather silly, wouldn't it? God, he still wants our hearts And he still wants our obedience. He wants all that we are. And for the believer, by faith, our life, it's now bound up with Christ. We're justified once and for all by the work of Christ. And then we go on. And in our thankfulness, we we strive for that obedience. If you are a Christian trusting in Jesus, you are not who you once were. In his victory, you also have victory. But for now, we have to go on. We go on, never again hopelessly stuck. We're never abandoned. But we need to be real here. Because the road to glory can often look a lot like a battlefield. The victory, it's assured, but the battle in this life, it continues And so those shell holes and and those mud pits of trial, they never seem far away. Yes, we go on. We go on under the, the victory banner of our king, but the battle in this life against the devil, against the world, and against our own flesh, it continues to rage. And so when we're among those, those battles, those, those pits, there, there are seasons where the pits, they can seem overwhelming and without end. But through them all, we do not walk alone. On August 20th, 1940, so almost one year after the start of World War II, Winston Churchill, he delivered a very stirring, memorable speech. The British Air Force, I don't know how many of you are historians, but the British Air Force, they were locked in this nightly battle with the, the German Air Force, the, the Luftwaffe. The, the Germans were coming and they were, they were trying to bomb Britain. And it was the job of these RAF pilots to try and take out as many bombers as they possibly could. 
Now, the, the British, they were far outnumbered, but their work in protecting the homeland from this bombing, it was critical. And so Churchill, very famously, he said this. This is what he says, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And while I completely get the sentiment and I admire the courage, I can't help but think of our Savior. So may I then revise Churchill's statement. I would say never in the history of the world, in all its conflicts, its pits, its sorrows, its lostness, was so much owed by so many to one. To one. Because our Savior, He doesn't save just for one night. He doesn't save partially. He saves for eternity. And so Christians, you owe everything to this Savior. Our King who willingly left the glories of heaven and entered the pit to ensure that we would never have to to stay there. that, That we wouldn't have to live in those pits forever. And so you may be right now in a pit. You, you could look forward and say, you know what, I've got just a horizon of pits ahead of me. But do you know where your hope is in the midst of the minefield? And so very briefly, I want to turn in the last point to our hope while in the pit. We're looking in verses 11 to 17 and things, they, they make a shift here. At the start of our psalm, it's like we were looking back in time as David, he was remembering his past deliverance. Then in the second part, David, he prophesied about his greater son. And it's like we exited David's timeline and we we saw these words ultimately fulfilled in Christ, the deliverer that we desperately needed. And now in verses 11 to 17, it's like we return to David's situation once more. He's looking to the future. So as we land in verses 11 to 17, we have another pit and a sequence of pits that now stand before him. Now, you see, it's, it's another pit, but it's the same God, the same hope. And so David, he still pleads for God's help because it, it is genuinely hard to find yourself in a pit. Isn't that true? When you're just in a, a season that never seems to end. And it's hard to see the pits on the horizon and anticipate pain or sorrow or failure now, as Christians, we, we are delivered from that first gaping pit of our lostness. We are saved. We're going on under the, the banner of Christ. But we'll still need to face pits of so many other kinds. Can you name the pits that are in your life? Because sometimes in God's wisdom, it seems that we're going to live in those pits for a long time. You get to know them pretty well, don't you? And maybe it's depression, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's a medical diagnosis. It could be your finances are a mess, unexpected expenses, a season of spiritual doubts. Maybe it's pure exhaustion. It could be unconfessed sin, it could be unconquered sin. It could be disappointment in life. It just it hasn't gone the way you thought it would. It could be sorrow over miscarriage. Or maybe over the loss of a loved one. It could be something as simple as, as, I shouldn't say simple, something as complex as infertility. It could be loneliness. It could be so many other things besides. Now you here, you know what your pits are. 
You can likely name them. You, you probably know your friends' pits as well. You're, you're walking with them in them. And maybe you're thinking, you know what, one pit? I feel like I've got 20 pits going on here. Well, you're not alone there. David, he's right there with you. He says in verse 12, evils, in, ha, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So whether it's one or it's 20, where do your eyes go? Where do your cries go? Who do they ascend to? We can trust God. We can still come to him and, like David, ask for him to once more show his tender mercy. We can ask that we could know and really know his steadfast love, that we may have his faithfulness preserve us. We may ask that he would turn his face upon us and be gracious to us. So is this life of pits a hopeless situation? Is your situation ever beyond the deliverance of the Lord? Are there sins that are beyond Christ's perfect sacrifice? Really, is there a pit that's too deep for Jesus to come in and to bring us back out again? Well, dear church, like David, we may need to wait long, but we're never forgotten. If you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, you have hope in the deepest pit. You have a hope for this life, but also for the life to come. And so David prays. He doesn't just bury his head in the sand and hope, you know what, I hope this goes away. No. He prays. He takes it to the Lord and he's praying earnestly. He prays for deliverance. He asks that God would make haste to help him. He's not having fun here. It's hard to be in the pit. And so he prays that that God would shame his enemies. He doesn't ignore the problems. He takes them to the Lord. And no matter what your pit is, we must do the same. Psalm 40, it teaches that the hope of the believer, it, it extends beyond the lip of your current pit. It's a hope that's fixed on the person of Jesus Christ. And so you get to make it your life's aim to live for this king with all your heart and in obedience. We can look at verse 16. He says, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Are David's pits all gone? No, they're not. But there's a gladness in resting in the faithfulness of the Lord. See how he ends in verse 17. As for me, I'm poor and needy. That's true of you. That's true of me. It was true of David. But that isn't where he stops. He says, but the Lord takes thought for me. Poor and needy, and yet known and loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Church, you're here this morning, but you're going to need to leave this building. You're going to need to go on. And you never do so alone You never do so beyond the aid of Christ. Christ, he is our our all-sufficient deliverer. He, He is our sure hope. And so we wait patiently. In this life, we're we're awaiting the day when we will see that deliverer. 
Because there is a day that's coming when you will see him face to face. When you will be with him in glory and never again, never again will a pit loom on your horizon. Never again shall the miry bog cling to us. And we will sing of his mighty deliverance. We'll sing of Jesus Christ, the lamb, the sacrifice for ruined man. And the words of Rutherford, as we're going to sing later, we, the church, we will gaze with unending love on Christ, our bridegroom. For the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. We will not gaze at glory, but on our King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, you search us and you know us. You know our our rising up and our lying down. There's nothing hidden from you, and so our pits are, are laid bare before you. In your providence, you bring them to us. And yet you do not leave us. You do not leave your children. And so we ask whatever pits are here in your congregation, that in your love for us, you would would teach us that you are with us, that you have not left our, our condition, our souls to dismay, but that we may rest in you and in your faithfulness. That there is a a life that we look forward to even beyond this world, a life when we will see you in glory and we will rejoice forever in the presence of our King. Steady our hearts in this. Comfort us in that reality. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.